This episode of Real Blend is brought to you by Marvel Strike Force. Marvel Strike Force is a mobile squad RPG that allows you to battle with your favorite team of superheroes and supervillains in a fight to save the universe against threats like Doctor Doom and Apocalypse. Power up your favorite characters and build a team to complete missions, unlock gear and other resources, and even challenge other players in PvP modes such as Alliance War and Arena. New ways to battle with your roster are released regularly and the meta is constantly evolving. And now you can sign on for Marvel Strike Force's new Deadpool Anniversary event in order to receive a generous gift containing character shards, an anniversary diamond orb, gear, and other great items. Better yet, each week during the Deadpool anniversary, players can complete events and receive even more special rewards and skins. If you want to get in on all the fun of Marvel Strike Force, be sure to use our promo code MAXPOOL, that's M-A-X-P-O-O-L, and thank you to Marvel Strike Force for supporting the show. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match, with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hey Blenders, it's Sean, and here to introduce you to a new bonus episode of Real Blend. We are back with Ryan Johnson, the director of Glass Onion, a returning guest to the show, and somebody we've been dying to get on ever since we managed to see uh, Glass Onion. Gabe and I caught it in Toronto, and then Jake and Kevin caught up with it later. We all love it and couldn't wait to discuss it in depth uh, with Ryan. You guys are um, going to be able to see this in theaters in select markets over the Thanksgiving holiday, so we wanted to make sure that we had a spoiler-free conversation uh, that we could put together with Ryan Johnson that you guys get a chance to listen to. If you do get a chance to go out to theaters and see it, because it's going to be in some limited screens before coming to Netflix in December, uh, you'll hear in the conversation that there's a few things that we reference uh, that Ryan definitely dances around. I mean, he, he without a doubt wants to protect all the different mysteries and the secrets and the reveals, as do we, because we want to make sure that you guys enjoy this in a theater and that you experience this story from start to finish. Um, but this is still a really fun listen. And he gets into some um, incredible uh, Breaking Bad stuff as well, too, and some more digging back into Knives Out and what he learned from that and just Agatha Christie and writing murder mysteries. It's a really, really fun conversation. So uh, without further ado, this is Ryan Johnson on a bonus episode of Real Blend discussing Glass Onion, a Knives Out mystery. I was I was sitting in the uh, world premiere up in uh, Toronto and uh, following the movie, there was a Q&A and the very first uh, audience member who stood up asked you a question about something that we've fascinated, uh, been fascinated about, but I couldn't believe that mainstream people knew it as well, too, which was the, that ability that you got in Knives Out to shoot on film for one day for your birthday. <laughs> 
<laughs> and this guy stood up and he asked you if you had the ability to do it again. And I was like, I can't believe that that was the first question out of the, out of the gate. Do you remember that at all? It was pretty darn cool. I mean, usually, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's fun to answer questions. It's always, you know, how many days did you shoot or what was your budget or so that to have somebody pull that out was really, really cool. I wish it's, I could have answered yes. I wish I could have told him yes, but we, we didn't on this one. But uh <laughs> But why do you think why do you think that's so important to your fans that you get the ability to shoot on film? I mean, well, to be clear, I don't shoot on film anymore. So sure, yeah. <laughs> but uh, I mean, I think like because you know, I think that speaks to someone just like me and probably like you guys that grew up, um, grew up with kind of just loving the romance of films being shot on film. And I, I shot on film up until the Last Jedi. You know, mm -hmm. we were still using film cameras, and there's just something about growing up. Um, having and i used to edit also on film in film school we were like the last class at sc to be cutting on moviolas and to actually be splicing together 16 millimeter film a short i made out of college i cut my own negative on so um i mean i love just like working with working with film um and yeah i i, I don't know man i love that it's uh I, I shoot we shoot digital now and and the reason we do is is my cinematographer steve yedlin is a huge tech head and he has put a ton of work into film emulation um to the point where uh i don't know i i watch like i i look at glass onion and it it feels like it was shot on film to me absolutely that said i just watched like a we just watched um uh the the printout of the film print that we struck of it and it looks it looks even better. <laughs> Not because it looks clearer or brighter or any or cool. It just it's got that slight imperfection of film that just lends this air of romance to it. I guess you know. I can imagine. Yeah. Ryan, I, I want to talk about the initial creative process of when you're starting to formulate what the story and the mystery is going to be. And I'm really curious at what point in your creative process do you come up with the killer? And the motive, because I would imagine it needs to be pretty early because it's almost like I kind of visualize it as the sun and the planets are like the other plot points revolving around it. Is that like one of the first things you figure out? It's one of them. Yeah, it's kind of in a cloud of like the first stuff that I have to figure out. Um, although, I mean, I, I feel like, you know, the way that I try and approach these things uh, is first and foremost thinking about them dramatically, thinking about them as as a as a movie movie um, like what is going to have the audience leaning forward in that Hitchcock way, as opposed to kind of leaning back and stroking their chin, trying to solve the puzzle. So um, as central as something like who is the killer is, it's really, it's central in that it's one piece of dramatically who's going to play what part in this. It's funny with Agatha Christie's books, uh, for instance, like I feel like there is actually kind of a trick to solving them. And the trick is rooted in, uh, not finding clues, not putting the pieces together. It's rooted in the fact that she was a good writer. Mm. And the, the reality is, and everyone cover your ears or skip the next 20 seconds if you don't want to be able to guess every Agatha Christie book. The killer, <laughs> the killer is always the character who it will be most dramatically satisfying for the killer to be. It's the, <laughs> that's that that's kind of the reality of any good murder mystery is that you're going for satisfaction at the end above and beyond. Oh, I never would have guessed that person did it. And sometimes you never you don't. Most often you don't guess who did it, but when it happens, 
it feels good in the same way that any type of movie ending feels good because the dramatic stakes have been, been built up to a point where it's actually the conclusion of a story and not just the reveal of a, of a puzzle answer. It's so funny you say that because we were just talking about how much we would love to see Tom Cruise in one of these movies moving forward, that he'd be such a great part of a cast like this. And initially I go, oh, he's got to be the killer. Like you have to make time. And then Sean, you said like, no, he can't be. the So so would Tom Cruise killer or no? Well, I think that that's what that would buy you is the audience would be perfectly split between he's either obviously the killer or he's so obviously the killer that he can't. (laughs) killer so i think we get away with it actually and i I don't know man honestly i'm not going to say yes or no because if i ever am lucky enough to get tom cruise in one of these movies i don't want you digging this back up and (laughs) 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 well so brian we only have two examples of these films so far um but you've been lucky enough to get some extremely famous people and i'm very curious in terms of do you feel the need to balance screen time for the people that you've brought on board or for certain characters, or does the story truly dictate it that like, if one of your characters needs to be off the board for 30 minutes, they're off the board for 30 minutes. Well, I mean, yeah, if if someone doesn't enter until later in the story or goes away for part of the story, that's kind of a natural part of it. But I mean, I will say when I'm writing it, I'm, I am very conscious of um, one of the, the, one of kind of the, some of the marching orders of making these I've given myself is I'm trying to recreate the star studded all-star cast um, kind of uh, movies of the late seventies and early eighties that I grew up watching like death on the Nile murder Mm -hmm. on the Orient express evil under the sun. The, The fact that there is actually a pleasure in knowing that you're going to cast people who not necessarily even the most famous actors in the world, but, actors that the audience is going to take incredible delight in seeing them pop up on the screen. And, and so knowing that I am thinking of, um, I mean, you want to do this anyway with an ensemble of suspects, but I I am thinking very much, you know, if I know I'm going to be approaching these great actors, I want to justify them being there. So um, Mm -hmm. trying to balance them all, trying to give everybody something to do that's uh, really worth their time. Uh, Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's very much on my mind when I'm writing. Well, to that point, so I've only seen the film one time. Sean's seen it twice, but I do get the impression that this is going to be one of those movies that changes once I see it a second time. Sean was able to pick up a lot of things sort of knowing the secrets already. When you direct a scene as a storyteller, how much thought goes into the audience who's seeing it for the first time and maybe plugging things in for the audience who's seeing it for the second time? I mean, in a way, I almost feel like this movie is is more designed to be watched a second time than the than Really? Tried to, I tried to really, in a fun way, play fair with the audience um, uh, in some ways that are just subtle and kind of clever, but in other ways that are dramatic and hopefully, I don't, yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm curious, I'm curious on what your experience was seeing it a second time. It, 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 when I was making it, I was very much in the mindset of um, this will be so much fun the second time when you know what's happening here to kind of parse out that first half of it. Yeah. Oh, well, I mean, there there are things I can't discuss right now, but there are certain performances that I feel are Oscar worthy because once you realize what's happening, you know, and and <laughs> who, who might be playing whom, uh, it throws you completely off the trail. And, and and even this isn't, I don't think, spoiling much of anything. It completely changes Benoit's uh, spot yeah, so. in the story, you know, like you you follow it a certain way but when you know then you're like it's it's a 
totally different experience uh, and and extremely rewarding. That's awesome. I mean, I also I, I would I, I hope that um, I think the first time you watch you watch a murder mystery, there's there's almost like a you're doing math in your head. You're trying to kind of get ahead of it. You're trying to outguess it. You're kind of like, like you know, there's there's I know when I do, there's a certain part of my brain that's not relaxing, whereas um I, I'm, I am looking forward to people kind of after that first viewing, if they revisit it, being able to kind of relax their brain a little and enjoy enjoy the construction of it as a whole, enjoy the ride. I think it's, um, yeah, yeah, but that, that makes me really, really happy that you said that, Sean. It's really cool. Yeah. Well, I will say, too, that I brought my wife uh, for the second viewing and I spent most of it looking at her because I was waiting for like the reveals <laughs> and her reaction to the reveals. It's a fun movie to watch with somebody who hasn't seen it yet. We talk often about um, From Dust Till Dawn, you know, for, with yes. someone who might not know the twist in the middle of that. And you're just watching them the whole time. So <laughs> I asked Netflix if they could put it in my preview queue. Uh, to be able to watch for a second time at home. And they lovingly told me no. Oh, well, luckily for Bye. you, it's out in the 23rd. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> See a silver platter right there for you, man. Well, <laughs> along those lines, Ryan, is there any plan for you to do an in-theater commentary for this uh, track that people can you know, slap on? I need to get my ass in gear. Um, I'm, I, would, I would absolutely love to. I've been so, so, so completely overwhelmingly busy between this and the post-production on poker face my tv show that i i just haven't had time to do it i gotta see if i can get it out there before um before the movie comes out although also i mean i don't know i i have to get into it with netflix i don't think at the moment netflix has has the option to do a commentary track on their netflix releases even so right right, right. Definitely could also be something that you could use at home, I suppose, you know. Is so, that so um, funny that like at the time when you did that for Bloom, you I heard you say in interviews, you were like, this was just to get people into the theater, you know, and now oh your family kind of wants it. <laughs> I know. It's really cool. I mean, I, you know, when when I was um, a teenager is when Criterion was just starting to put out laser discs. And I spent I spent one summer at my grandparents' place in Denver, and uh, they had a laserdisc player. And so I would just rent laser Criterion laser discs, and I would buy v- blank VHS tapes, and I would tape the laser discs. I would do one copy clean and one copy with the commentary track. <laughs> and, and growing up, just kind of having that be a version of film school. Yeah, I think there's. I mean, I think there's a real value in it. You know, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, Ryan, uh, you, you and I were talking the other day and you told me that if you make enough of these movies, you would consider bringing some of the characters back to maybe start integrating and, and, and sort of talking to each other. I'm sort of curious, in theory, how many movies that would take. And of these two films, which characters would you like to to sort of bring back to the sandbox and play play with again? I really don't know. I mean, it, it would have to be a really specific circumstance. I mean, I think the big thing is just and this is why um, it's not so much like a hard and fast rule, but it is just something that um, is baked into uh, these movies. The big thing is that each one of these movies is going to be the story of the mystery that the movie is based around. You know, mm-hmm. this is not like a universe. This is not the Avengers this is not like, you know, we're building up like this going story of all these things. Um, and so it's, it, I guess the the main thing is it's hard for me to imagine what any of the previous suspects would have to do with a new mystery that we're doing someplace else, I guess. Yeah. 
be right. fun to do a little nod to it or something, you know, or or if there is something that comes up that makes sense, that would be quite fun too. But I guess that's the main reason. It's not even that I have some hard and fast rule. It's just each one of these is going to be dealing with a whole new deal. And um, I'm not sure what the thrombies would be doing on Miles Bronze Island. I'm not sure what Bridget <laughs> would be doing whatever place we set next set next. So, um, and to me, that's, that's kind of the fun of it, the pleasure of it, that you're going to get a whole new meal every single time, you know, For sure. and you're bringing the strongest character along with you from, from story to story. All you need. That's all you need. Benoit Blanc will always be there. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so people will better understand this, uh, when they see it, but I, I have to ask you about this scene because I have not felt more suspense in a movie, uh, than a scene that involves a single drop of Jeremy Renner's hot sauce. <laughs> I mean, the audience is just on the edge of their seat. I almost, <laughs> I almost cut. I almost cut that bit, and then I, no. luckily I left it because I was like, ah, I don't know, is this? A bit? And luckily I left it in for our first test screening. And when I heard the audience react to it, I was like, oh, okay, I'm not cutting that. <laughs> <laughs> um, can you talk about just composing that shot as well, too? Because it comes at a very tense moment. Yeah, lots of lots of credit to. I, again, I don't want to. I don't want to give anything away. I'm gonna be very of very careful here, but um, it, it requires a performance of an actor that's very subtle. And also when we were shooting, it was very theoretical. I had to kind of describe to the actor, okay, this is kind of happening and now do this little thing. Okay, now wait, now do this little thing. And now this, you know what I mean? It was almost like talking them through uh, the acting against a CG character or something. Okay. You know? <laughs> uh, so so it was it, all, all kudos to them, all credit to them for pulling it off. But it's always so much fun. I'm always, I love, I, even now that I've seen the movie a bunch, I'm, I still slip into the back of the theater when we're like, doing Q and A's and try and get there early enough to hear that scene. Cause it's, it's really fun hearing the audience ride, ride that moment. Oh my God. So when you use names like Jeremy Renner and, uh, and Jared Leto, are they, are they friends of yours? Are they people that you reach out to? Do you let them find out on their own? I'm, I'm I, neither of them are my friends. I'm big fans of both of theirs, but they, uh, um, they, they were both, luckily both of them have a great sense of humor and they were both very cool with it. We, we did reach out to them and let them know <laughs> we were doing it. But, uh, but luckily they were both really super cool about it. So, um, and, uh, yeah. And I hope they both bring those products to market. I would definitely, I would, <laughs> I would buy, <laughs> buy Jared Leto, Jared Leto spiked kombucha. I would just, just yeah, stock yeah. the shelves. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, right. I read an interview with Dave Batista recently where he said that Daniel Craig was just uh, more fun on this set than he was uh, on the set of Spectre playing Bond. And honestly, as a journalist, I find him to be Daniel to be more fun to speak with about these films than as Bond. Um, he just he's just a little bit more playful with Bond. Those junkets. He was always very serious as a filmmaker. Do you think that the more playful nature of these films maybe just allows him to breathe a bit more than the Bond sets might have? Well, I don't know. I wasn't, I wasn't on the bounce. I don't want to speak for him. I do know that, um, I do know that playing this character, he has a hell of a lot of fun. And I know that was one thing that, um, I think when I first, uh, got to know him, when I was first meeting him, like, I, I think I did approach him thinking he was going to be a very stern or a very serious guy, just because I had made, you know, of, of what I'd seen him do in Bond. But, he has such a sense of humor. He's such a warmth. He's such a goofball. And um, 
I know that on set we are like two kids playing in the sandbox. It's just we we have so much fun uh, building this thing and kind of goofing around, especially in this movie where he gets to kind of channel his inner Jacques Tati and do some kind of physical humor and a little bit more clowning in it. Um, uh, he, uh, yeah, I don't know, man. All I can tell you is on the, on our movies, he has a blast. You know. Do you find as, uh, as an actor for him, is it important to have for sort of the set and the environment be playful? Like for him, do you think that, that does that yield sort of a better performance on his part? Yeah, I mean, it's not, you know, it's not like we're just like goofing around the whole time. It is a very focused and very, you know, serious set. But I, I would say what is what's so important for us is that the ensemble we bring together for these things uh, all gets along is having a good time on set. And I like to create a very relaxed, welcoming environment on set. I don't like it to feel stressful. I like everyone to feel relaxed and just feel like um, that. I feel like just that's the way to get everybody to do their best work. And uh, I try and set that tone. Daniel has a lot to do with setting that tone on set as kind of, you know, number one on the call sheet. Everyone kind of looks to him. Um, and the fact that he's so easygoing and cool, that kind of makes it, you know, lets everyone relax and kind of say, okay, we're not having drama now. This is, this is uh and and also you hire cool people. You get people like you know Kate and Catherine Hahn and Leslie and um, Dave. I mean it's it's just uh, I don't know that all of those things go into it, and then hopefully it creates an environment on set where you can chill out and 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 be be goofballs. <laughs> <laughs> um, Ryan, in the first movie, it's um, we get a mention of Benoit's father, uh, brief mention, and I know you've said that like. You like pepper and little nuggets, but that's not supposed to be the point. But but that character just seems like someone who would be so intriguing. Have you ever thought about potentially bringing bringing him up in a future story? That's really interesting. I mean, I could see it if it had a place in it. I mean, I, I think I definitely do believe that it's you want to kind of avoid the trap of thinking that the detective's backstory is interesting in and of itself in these movies. It's fun to get little glimpses of it. But I think it's absolutely best in small doses. Um, I think you always want to keep your eye on the ball and remember the story you're telling is the story of the mystery. And the part the detective play is playing is the part of the detective. He's only interesting insofar as he's getting us to the end of the solution of the crime um, and playing his part dramatically in the story. Mm -hmm. So um, to me, I don't know. It's again, it's fun to kind of dole little things out. And the fact that, you know, uh, you know, the the fact that he talks about his father a little bit, the fact that we get a glimpse of his home life and this one a little bit. Mm. I mean, I, I love stuff like that. And it all goes into who he is, but mm. ultimately who he is is the detective. And, and uh, you know, you got to kind of you know, kind of stick to your guns with it. I yeah. like too. there's an element where Catherine Hahn was like, oh, you're the guy who solved the thing with the belly dancers. And yeah. the <laughs> <laughs> In the first one, we had the, the tennis <laughs> Yeah, Tony Collette is like, you solved that thing with the tennis champ. Uh, and in this one, a ballet dancer. I like building these other phantom cases, giving hints of like these exotic, crazy cases that he's solved in the past. <laughs> now, do amazing. you know them? Do you know and Daniel oh, know here, the yeah, details? Yeah. Are you guys familiar or do you just make that up on the spot? It's 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 enough work making up the actual mystery. <laughs> the tennis court one was was drawn from uh, was taken was a reference to one of my favorite movies, uh, Sleuth, the original film with uh, Michael Caine and Lawrence. Michael Caine. Yeah. So the 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 uh, mystery, the end of his mystery book that um, uh, that Lawrence Olivia is dictating into the machine at the beginning is a death by double fault, and he's describing the detective. <laughs> 
like, uh, you know, throwing a body out onto the tennis court. And John Dixon Carr actually uh, had a mystery that was like, uh, had a similar kind of thing at the heart of it. So um, anyway, yeah, so there are, they're mostly just kind of references, but to me, it's, that's what's fun is just the, the intrigue of like, oh, what could that have been? It's a blast. <laughs> that, it's a blast. uh ryan circling back to you know you're talking about like the importance of having a good vibe on set and everyone having fun um i want to say three words to you and have you explain to me what they mean (laughs) what does mafia game nights mean to you oh my god all right so when we were you know we did the first half of the shoot in greece Second half of the shoot, we were in Belgrade in Serbia, which is a great town. I've, I've, I've made my second movie, The Brothers Bloom, there. I, I love Belgrade. But we were there right in the middle of the Delta spike, and so the COVID numbers were terrible. So we were all basically – we wanted to keep everyone safe, so we were all very locked down in this very nice hotel in Belgrade. And so on weekends, to blow off steam, we would rent out the hotel bar on the roof And we would all go up there and we would play mafia together. We would get really drunk and we would play mafia games and have dance parties and uh, get very, very silly. At some point in the evening, uh, Kate Hudson was rolling Catherine Hahn around on the dessert tray. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) We had an absolute blast. And that, you know, we were really doing it just to kind of blow off steam and not lose our minds, but it, it had the additional effect of just kind of bonding everyone and just forming this, 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 you know, group of this friendship around the kind of like the ensemble of this movie that, that I think also really helps the working process. The disruptors. The disruptors. You're, forming yes. the, exactly. you're forming the disruptors. Well he didn't even notice it. Yeah, um, well- Ryan, I want to pivot just a minute because earlier uh, this year, someone who I adore, um, Bruce Willis, announced his retirement. Um, and you, I believe, you know, worked with Bruce on on what I consider to be one of his Mount Rushmore films, which is Looper. Um, and so I'm curious, just what what did you think when you heard that news, and what do you think Bruce's legacy is going to be? Um, I mean, it was so you know incredibly sad to hear the news, and uh, I, I I mean, I, Bruce is one of I mean, obviously, he's one of the the all-time great movie stars of our generation. He's a fantastic actor who's left some incredible performances that I think are going to only grow in estimation over the years to come. I think as an actor, um, he was tremendous. And just personally for me, you know, uh, he was so wonderful and lovely and generous to work with on looper he showed up um just and worked so hard on the part and also was just so lovely to me i was i was you know this is a few movies ago i was still pretty young i had just made a couple of films you know in many ways i was i was quite green and he could not have been more respectful and lovely and um of on a set that was filled with friends like Joseph Gordon-Levitt and Emily Blunt and Paul Dano. Um, I have to say, Bruce, you know, when Bruce was on set, we, uh, everything just kind of locked into place and we just, we, we moved fast. He wouldn't go back to his trailer in between setups. He would stand there on set and just hang out with the crew and wait. And so we were moving super fast when he was there and right. uh, he cared, man. He cared so deeply about it. He really invested in it, but more than that, he was, he was just a lovely, wonderful human being to work with. So I got so much respect and love for that guy. And, and 
you know, his, his, his legacy, I think is really gonna, um, like I said, I have a feeling it's just going to grow in estimation over the years. I feel like over the course of his career, every once in a while, he would, you know, put some support behind an up and coming filmmaker that he believed in, you know, whether it was, you know, Quentin at the time too, you know, was only coming off of Reservoir Dogs and and you coming off Bloom, you know, his support was. Yeah. M. Night. I mean, you look at the filmmakers that he's kind of, you know, it's, it's, yeah, yeah. He, um, and, and going all in too, that's the thing. You look at those performances or you look at him in 12 monkeys, you look at, you know, it's, it's, um, when he committed to a role and threw himself into it, um, you know, there was nobody better. Yeah. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah. Ryan, next year is the 10 year anniversary of what I consider to be one of the single greatest episodes of television of all time, which is Ozymandias. Um, <laughs> I was just wondering if you could just talk Ten to me about, years. yeah, oh which is crazy. God. Uh, I was wondering if you'd like, the scene in the desert, the the go fuck yourself scene, which I think is one of the greatest scenes in Breaking Bad, which makes it one of the greatest scenes in television. Uh, <laughs> what do you remember about shooting that and maybe a lesson you learned on that episode that you carried with you today? I mean, I'm still blown away. I got to I got to work on that episode. And uh, I mean, you know, Vince Gilligan, but more Moira Wally Beckett, who, who that's really her episode. She really wrote that episode. And we were we were true partners in making that episode um and i mean i i that day the the big thing i remember is that that location is in a valley um which meant we were dealing we were fighting the daylight um but we were fighting, we had even less daylight than we would have because we had to wait for the sun to get over the valley oh, wow and then we lost the sun early because it went behind the other side of the valley so um we had to be just really efficient. And I remember the day going smoothly. Um, I remember the moment with Dean, the moment that you're talking about. And he had, before we shot it, he had asked me right before the big thing happens, can I, I just want one moment to like on the camera, like I want, I want Hank to have a moment, you know? And so I said, that was so great to hear because I set another camera down low with him and you can see it in there right before he like takes one moment to himself, like he's ready. And then, and then the moment happens. Um, oh my God. The other, the other thing I remember we got towards the end of the day, the shadow was creeping and I realized suddenly I panicked and realized we have forgotten to cover one important moment. We have forgotten to get the shot of Walt where they've drugged Je- we've dra- they've dragged Jesse out and Walt comes up to him and tells him what he did to Jane. Oh God, that's the most heartbreaking moment. The most heartbreaking moment, moment. So literally the shadow is creeping across the ground. You can see it moving. And we grab, I said, grab that camera, grab Brian, grab Aaron. We pulled, we literally all the crew, it was like the raising the flag at Iwo Jima, like they were running and put the camera down. <laughs> the thing was, and you could see the sun coming. We put Brian, stand here and right here. And we, and go. And we just kept the camera rolling and got like, he, Brian just walked in and fucking nailed it like oh my god like three line readings and like the shadow of the valley is crawling up his calf you know <laughs> just about to lose the light and he nailed it and i think the thing is i think there's an urgency and an energy to what he's doing where you can feel that rush that we had trying to get that final setup um that's that's one of those like really fun moments of just i'll definitely never forget that <laughs> oh my god that's incredible um all right i got i want to bring it back around to glass onion um because i honestly can't say enough good things about it uh there's something that happened during the toronto um screening as well too which i want to make sure that you're aware of because obviously you're a screenwriter first and foremost um and your script gets applause breaks 
you know, lines of dialogue get applause breaks. How does that feel to you? It's, I mean, it's, it feels so good. I mean, look, you, we, we engineer these movies to be made, to be seen with audiences, you know, and yeah. you know, it, it's been so much fun to finally be able to put it in front of crowds. And I just, there's, I, I've never enjoyed before watching my own movies with crowds. I've always felt just like a, a pit, you know, just like my stomach in knots and are they liking it? What's going on until I made these started making these movies. And now I, I like I said, and any Q and a, I show up to, I'll get there early so I can stand in the back because feeling the crowd enjoy it and feeling them you know ride those moments and everything i mean that's you know that's that's it's it's why it's why we make movies it's why we go to the movies and and feeling it happen it's just it's a really good feeling man it's a really so tell us tell us about the day that netflix told you it's getting theatrical release then Oh, we were so happy. I mean, that had been a long, long conversation, you know, from the very beginning. That was something that Daniel and I and my producer, Rom, were um, really made clear to them. It was super important to us. And um, and all, you know, all credit to Netflix. I'm really thankful to them that they um, stepped out of their comfort zone, reached across the aisle. And I'm thankful to the theater chains that they made the deals with um, that we were able to make this version of it happen. I'm hoping... People go. I'm hoping it does well, and people go out to see it in theaters. And then I'm hoping they go home to the, in Christmas with their families. They say, "Oh, you haven't seen this? It's great!" and put it on. And one supports the other. You know, I think that's that's the main reason I'm hoping it does well in the theaters, and I'm hoping it does well on Netflix. I want it to do well anyway, but I I, I really do believe that streaming and theatrical can complement each other. And yeah. if we can show that, hopefully, we can get even a bigger theatrical thing next time, or at least keep. Well, you know that Twitter has to be mad about something always. Um, and the <laughs> most recent thing that they're mad at is people are sharing um, seating charts for the theaters oh. in their area. Oh. And they're and they're packed. They're oh. full. They're oh. full. The thing is, I, a week ago, you know, back when we first announced the tickets were on sale, I didn't know how much to lean into. Like, please buy them now. <laughs> please go now and buy them early because... I know that I, I feel really, I mean, I feel really bad in the next week if people can't get in to see it in the theater. Yeah. I mean, I, I, you know, good I, problem I, to have. It's a good problem. To it's have. a very, it's a good problem, but I, I still, I want everyone who wants to see it in the theater to be able to see it in the theater. So I'm bummed. But like I said, this is, this is more than we thought we were going to get for it. I'm happy that some people will get to see it. And, uh, yeah, and uh, uh, the ones who don't, hopefully down, hopefully down the line after the Netflix thing, we'll be able to do special screenings. We'll be able to, you know, have it out there or something. But um, yeah, yeah, I'm done. anyway. But uh, there's That'd be amazing. Yeah, yeah, good. I guess good problem, but problem nonetheless. You know. Well, Ryan, you are probably one of the busiest people in Hollywood this week, so we can't thank you <laughs> enough for taking the time to sit down with us, man. It, it means a lot to have you back on the show. Oh, Jake, thank, you. thank you guys so much, man. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much to Ryan Johnson for coming back on the show. I really hope that he becomes uh, a show regular because he's a lot of fun to talk to and uh, has a ton of great stories about making, you know, we didn't even get into Star Wars on this as well, too. Uh, so there's so much to discuss with him. I uh, hope you guys enjoyed that conversation. We're going to have a full show on Friday. And in the uh, middle of that show, we have an interview with director J.D. Dillard, who has a movie Devotion coming to theaters. And we're going to have a review of that. We'll have a, a full on review of Glass Onion that is spoiler free. And on Friday, the that episode you're going to want to listen to because we dive into Steven Spielberg's latest film, 
The Fablemans. So plenty of reasons for you to follow Real Blend. If you're watching us on YouTube, hit subscribe, turn on your notifications. Uh, join us every Friday morning for when we uh, put episodes up. Join us whenever we put a bonus episode up. And then for premium subscribers, uh, we'll be available with a new show on Monday. Enjoy your weekend, everybody, and we'll talk to you next week. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.